0: Scripture. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 2 and chapter 3. Well, we won't read all of Jeremiah chapter 2 and chapter 3, we will start in Jeremiah chapter 2. So if you're following along with our house Bibles, which are right in front of you, uh, I'm reading out of the very same Bible that you have there. And so we're on page 665. Uh, We'll start on page 664 and then read a few pages after as well. So 664, <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. Questions are incredibly important. Finding the right question to ask sometimes elicits the answer even before it comes out. But questions are incredibly important. You'll recall in scripture. As the crowds had come to follow Jesus, and just crowd after crowd, people from all over the place were following Him, and He feeds thousands and thousands. But then when He starts to get to some hard teachings, and He says things like, I must die and rise again on the third day. He says, unless you eat My flesh and drink My blood, you have no place in My kingdom the crowds start to leave. They start to go away, and they start to say, I don't know about this any longer. See, some of the crowds were just there for the spectacle, to see the miracles happen. And once other things, once harder teachings and the difficulty of following Christ became apparent, they start to walk away. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, who do they say that I am? Peter lists off a short list. He says, I don't know, some say, you know, Elijah, come back, perhaps. Some say Moses, perhaps. And, And Jesus asks the important question. He says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. See, a good question is incredibly important for getting to the heart of the matter. And this is what we have today from God as he speaks to Israel you recall last week when we began in Jerusalem, we saw the calling of Jeremiah, and we knew that the story of Jeremiah wasn't going to end well, that by verse 2 in Jeremiah, you already see by verse 3 for sure that the people of Jerusalem are going to end up in exile by the end of this letter. Jeremiah is supposed to go and call them back from their sins, and you know from the very beginning it's not going to work. <laughs> they have no interest in turning back. And so what we have today in chapters 2 and 3 is God's initial declaration of what they've done wrong and what they can do to set it right, more importantly. We're not going to read all of chapter 2 and chapter 3. I'm going to read parts of it for you, and you'll have to go in and read the rest to fill yourself in later today. But in order to get quickly to the heart of what they've done wrong and what they need to do now to be restored to God, God offers them a series of questions today, and we'll use these questions to shape the way that we read Scripture. Let's pray together, and we'll begin reading Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. Father God, I thank you so much that you've been so gracious to us as to speak to us. And I pray that when we hear Your words today, we wouldn't harden our hearts, but that we would believe and that we would follow You. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. The Word of God to His people. Now the Word of the Lord came to me. Go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. I remember the loyalty of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness and land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And all who ate it found themselves guilty and disaster came on them. This is the Lord's declaration. Hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me? So that they went so far from me and followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They stopped asking, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of desert and ravines, through a land of drought and darkness, a land no one traveled through where no one lived? I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty. But after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priests quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts of the law no longer know me. The rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless idols. This is the declaration of the Lord, and in summary, his statement against Israel. He first asks them a question, verse 5, What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far for me to follow worthless idols and then to themselves become worthless? An excellent question. Here's how it starts out. God says, what did I do? Was there some fault in me? And it's clearly a rhetorical question, no. No. God led them out of slavery. God made them into the nation. God took them through the deserts and gave them an inheritance, but they rejected the Lord. This is as if God is asking Adam and Eve in the garden. Speaking of good questions, you remember God speaks to Adam and Eve in the garden after they've sinned, and the first thing he says is, where are you? Adam and Eve sinned, and they saw that they were naked, and they were ashamed because of their sin, and so they hid themselves, and God comes and says, where are you? And then God says to them, who told you to eat of the tree of knowledge of evil, good and evil? And finally, did you break my commands and eat of the tree? By his questions alone, the people are brought low. Adam and Eve, Israel, by his questions alone. See here, Israel, another great question. Israel has stopped asking, where is the Lord our God? The reason that you would cry out in a time in your life when you felt like God wasn't near is because simply that you feel like God isn't near. I think we all know what this time is like. You don't have to be a Christian for very long before you reach a time in your life when you just feel like God is not near in a difficult situation in your life. And you cry out to Him and say, God, where are you? God, are, are you here? We, we're given words to even cry out by Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, the psalmist says, Just like a deer pants for water, so my soul pants after you. Where can I go to meet with you? We've all cried out like this before to say, I remember the times in my life when you were so near to me. And now I'm in this season where I I just, where's your presence, Lord? Where are you? But the problem for Israel is they're not even crying out to the Lord to say, where are you? They were brought out of slavery. They were given everything. They were provided for all along the way. They did none of it themselves. God brought them out of slavery Himself. He led them through the desert and fed them day and night Himself. And then when it comes to giving them the promised land, He did it by His own miracles. God did all of this, and now that they're in the land, they don't even call out to God. The priests aren't even saying, oh, where's our God? God. They've simply decided to follow after false and worthless gods and become worthless themselves. Another great question that's awfully important to us together today is posed by Rachel Denhollander. So Rachel Denhollander is a, uh, is a Baptist, like we are, uh, and uh, of my generation. What's, what's incredibly important about Rachel is she was the very first person back in 2016 who went public to accuse... Larry Nasser, the trainer for U.S. gymnastics. She was the very first person to go public, and after she uh, brought about charges, she with another woman, about how he had been abusing them, 450 other girls came forward. And then even more than that, with several other gymnast trainers, there was a huge institutional problem there. For what reasons? For the desire to be competitive and be the best, things were overlooked because there were whispers, there were allegations, but these things went uninvestigated for so long until the entire institution was sick with sin. So Rachel published a book a couple of years ago, and the title is simply this important question, what's a girl worth? She asks in the title of her book, what's a girl worth? How much are we willing to trade how much are we willing to overlook what are we willing to turn our head away from what is a girl worth she asks it's terrifying to know about the things that happened but sin brought out into the open is the first step towards setting things right and i'm proud to I'm proud to be even associated with the fact that we're fellow Southern Baptists with someone like her who will bring it to light. And by these same questions, God brings Israel's sin to light as well, saying, what have you been doing? Where are you? Why are you not even calling out anymore? God has more questions for Israel. Those were the first ones, but there is more. Listen, verse 9, therefore... I will bring my case against you. This is the Lord's declaration. I bring a case against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and take a look. Send someone to Kedar and consider carefully. See if there has ever been anything like this. Question, has a nation ever exchanged its gods? But they were not gods. Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Be appalled at this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. He says, go, go look. Go go to the nations, go to all the other nations around you, go take a look over here, go take a look over there. Has any nation ever traded in its own gods for the gods of some other nation? And he says, and they're not even real gods. And the way all the nations worked at that time, and perhaps at this time still, uh, and many of them, is there were household gods and tribal gods. And then as tribes took over and became nations, there were national gods. And so all these nations had their own gods that they cried out to and worshiped. All the, all the gods around Israel, all the other nations, the ways that they worshipped their gods were detestable and evil to God, and you'll understand, because to us as well. I mean, the Philistines worshipped their god by sacrificing children to their gods. This wasn't, oh, well, you know, they have a different culture and a different god. No, no, this was all evil. He goes, but these people are evil, and their gods aren't even real gods. But go and look at the nations, and see has anybody ever actually traded in their gods, even though they're not real, for some other god? And yet, that's what Israel has done. The as an entire nation, it wasn't just the kings of Israel. As you read through First and Second Samuel's, you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you have indictment of king after king about how they did not follow the Lord. They did what was detestable in the eyes of the Lord. They led other people to do what is wrong. But even still, those kings are just a representative of the rest of the institution, the whole nation, and all of the people. They did wrong, and they turned away from God, and God calls this a double evil. Not only did they turn away from him, and what does he call himself here? Not only have they abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and do you know that phrase, living water? Living water? Yeah, you who have read the scriptures once or twice before, it's not what Jesus calls himself in the New Testament. To the woman at the well, this is, I have a fountain of living water. If you come to me, you're to understand in this case, this living water has a a simple meaning here, although it definitely has a profound spiritual meaning that's drawn out. Here, it means living water means the idea of moving water, bubbling water. If you're going to drink some water someplace, what kind of water do you want to drink? beautiful, flowing mountain stream bubbling up out of the earth, clear as day, or stinky puddle of mud with bugs and tadpoles all over it. You know, which, which one are you going with? And that's what he says here. You have traded in the spring of living water coming up, bubbling up out of the earth, the clearest, purest water there is. For some cistern you dug yourself. It's like you tried to build your own swimming pool, and you just have this muddy puddle in the middle of your nation, and it's trash. And you want to go to that rather than to me. He's also going to use illustrations as he goes along as God brings his indictment against Israel of marriage. He is the groom, and they are the bride who have been unfaithful. He's going to use an illustration of parenting. He is like a parent to them, and they are like a child who will not obey. And here even he uses the illustration of water. I... Was to be the thing that satisfied you and provided for you. This is, while this turns our attention to Jesus in the New Testament, it's supposed to turn their attention back to Moses as he's leading them through the wilderness and he strikes the rock and water comes pouring out of it. All of this clearly related in Scripture, but he says, You traded the living water for a mud puddle is essentially what he says. Not only did you abandon me, but you went after something awful and evil. God continues his indictment against them in passionate terms in the rest of chapter 2. I want to skip over it for now for our sake. However, you ought to go and read it and hear how God grieves over a nation that he loves. As you read about God grieving over Israel, you have to understand the only reason he would grieve over them is because he cares about them. It requires a God who passionately loves his people to be so grieved. It doesn't require a God who is angry and malicious, but a God who cares so much. Let's go to chapter 3, verse 4. Having given out his indictment, having told them all that they've done wrong, how they've turned to all these other gods, how they've gone to everyone all over the place, he declares for them that judgment is deserved. And then in chapter 3, begins talking about repentance with them. Chapter 3, verse 4. Haven't you recently called to me My father, you are my friend in my youth. Will he bear a grudge forever? Will he be endlessly infuriated? This is what you have said, but you have done the evil things you are capable of. In the days of King Josiah, the Lord asked me, Have you seen what unfaithful Israel has done? She has ascended every high hill and gone under every green tree to prostitute herself there. I thought, oh, after she had done all these things, she would return to me. But she did not return. Her treacherous sister Judah saw it. I observed that it was because of unfaithful Israel had committed adultery that I sent her away. I gave her a certificate of divorce. Nevertheless, her treacherous sister Judah was not afraid, but also went and prostituted herself. Indifferent to her prostitution, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah didn't return to me with all her heart, only in pretense." So you'll need to understand here, he talks about Israel and Judah as different entities because at this point, the entire nation of Israel had been split in two. The ten northern tribes retained the name Israel, and the two southern tribes were called Judah. So he says Israel goes off into slavery first and then Judah later. Israel tends to follow a more evil course in general, never turning back to God. And Judah has a couple of kings in there that turn them back to God periodically. He says this is what they've done. And he uses this, I mean, it's startling, is it not, this metaphor that God uses for his people, of prostitution? It's supposed to be. God uses it. It's not inappropriate. He doesn't use vulgar or inappropriate terms. But he points out clearly what they have done is like prostituting themselves to these other gods by going and worshiping all these other people. He says the one nation saw it, and the other nation saw it, and they did it. This begins with a theoretical question that Israel asks God, verse 4, haven't you recently called to me? So this is the nations, Israel and Judah, calling out to God and saying, my father, you are my friend in my youth. Will he bear a grudge forever? Will he be endlessly infuriated? It's like Israel calls out to God and says, goodness gracious, are you just going to be mad at me all the time? Will you ever be satisfied? But here's the problem they never actually turn away from their sins. He says, you call out, verse 5, bear a grudge forever, will be endlessly infuriated. This is what you've said, but you have done the evil things you are capable of. And then in verse 10, yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah didn't return to me with all of her heart, only in pretense. It's like these two nations, all of God's people, saying, Oh, no, we don't want the judgment of the Lord. Please, don't give us the judgment of the Lord. We're not going to change anything. I mean, we're still going to keep going and worshiping all these other gods and doing whatever we want to. But come on, stop punishing us. It's the most deserving, worst attitude possible. They go, ah, why do we have this angry God? We're going to worship some other God who's not so angry. And God says, no, no, I'm a loving God who wants to forgive you. How many kings, how many generations have to go by that God is patient with them until they actually turn away from their actions? Do you know a person who says again and again in their lives, oh, I'm going to quit, so it's just a bad habit that they have in life, right? Not even a real sin, just a bad habit. Oh, gosh, i got to quit doing that. Oh, I need to stop. Oh, I know I'm going to quit. And year after year, they, they never do. We're going to say it's like a friend, so we don't have to indict ourselves <laughs> personally on this. But you know what exactly what Israel is doing here, because you've seen it in your own life, and you've certainly seen it around you. When somebody says, oh, i got to go get right with God, about actual sin in their life. Ah, oh, I know I need to do better. i got to do different. Ah, oh, you know what? i gotta, I got to start going back to church. i got to get things right. But they only repent in pretense. And they call out, Ah, oh, Father, forgive me. But with, with no interest in changing their own lives. They say, God, are you just going to bear a grudge forever? The answer is No. God's desire is forgiveness, but it can only happen if they'll actually turn away from what they're doing. How could He forgive them otherwise? There must be repentance if there's going to be forgiven. Or I ask you this. What good, between you and someone else, what good is an apology if the person never actually changes what they're doing wrong? It's useless. What is, after all, the anatomy of a good apology? Does it not begin with, I was wrong? You know what the anatomy of a terrible apology is? A terrible apology goes like this. You know, there was some stuff that got done wrong out there, and we ought to change some things and do better, and we're going to make a commitment to doing a very vague, uh, lacking any sort of uh, claim that I did anything wrong. You know what a good apology is? I was wrong, a good apology includes the repentance too, and I will not do this again, and a good apology includes, and here's how you can tell that I'm not going to do it again, because I'm going to change this, and I'm going to change this, and I'm going to change this. So if you know what a good apology looks like, and you know what a politician's apology looks like, (laughs) then you know, no, I'm not beating up on anybody. If we're going to attack anyone, then let us attack ourselves because we've all made those kinds of apologies before to God, have we not? So what I'm saying is, if you know what a bad one looks like and you know what a good apology looks like, then let us repent with a good apology. Father God, I did wrong. I will not do this any longer. And now I'm going to go figure out some steps that I can do to make it very clear that I will not do this any longer. Here is my commitment. I need your help. I need your forgiveness. I need your Holy Spirit. I did wrong. I'm not going to any longer, and I'm going to make plans to not do that again. If you're following a GPS, we don't need any more illustrations, but I have another one written down, so you're gonna get it, all right? (laughs) Let's say you're following a GPS on your phone in your car, right? And you're, uh, let's say you're you're driving around the bypass here in town, and you're supposed to have turned into, I don't know, Hounds Lake, right? And you keep driving, and it says, "Uh uh-oh, you know, you were supposed to have turned there, You, you need to turn around now and go back that way, and you say, oh man, I missed my turn, oh darn. But you don't actually change anything about your driving route, and you just keep going, what good is it? How are you helped to getting where you want to go if you won't actually take the wheel and turn it? So it is with our sin, and so it is with our lives. Let us, since we know what is good and right, and since we know how good God is, let us not be like Israel was here, but let us be genuine in our repentance. Let it not be a pretense for us, but let it be sincere and real. So, since God sees through Israel here, He sees right through their fake repentance, the only question that remains is, what is God going to do? What does God want now? What is He going to do? Let's pick back up. Chapter 3, verse 11. So, the Lord announced to me, unfaithful Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So go proclaim these words to the north and say, return, unfaithful Israel. What does God want? Return, unfaithful Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not look on you with anger, for I am unfailing in my love. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You've rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to strangers under every green tree. You have not obeyed me. This is the Lord's declaration. Return, you faithless children. This is the Lord's declaration. For I am your master. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds who are loyal to me, and they will shepherd you with knowledge and skill. When you multiply and increase in the land in those days, this is the Lord's declaration. No one will say again the ark of the Lord's covenant. It will never come to mind. No one will remember or miss it, because another one will not be made At that time, Jerusalem will be called the Lord's throne, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. They will cease to follow stubbornness in their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land I have given your ancestors to inherit." First, God declares who He is and what He wants. Return, unfaithful Israel. You see again and again the phrase, this is the Lord's declaration. It's this. It's exactly what you would be doing. One of the metaphors He uses here is a father talking to his children. It's one of those things you would do. Hey, 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 listen. <laughs> Take you by the cheeks and steer your attention. Look at me while I'm talking to you. Do you. These are the words coming out of my mouth. Do you hear them? This is what God says again and again. This isn't something one of the prophets came up. This isn't something Jeremiah is saying. This is the declaration of the Lord. This is the declaration of the Lord. Listen, people, this is the declaration of the Lord. And what does he say? I will not look on you with anger, for I am unfailing in my love. You see, it's not about who they are, it's about who he is. It's not that they hear the word of the Lord and suddenly repent and turn around and do great for the rest of their lives and everybody lives happily ever after. You already know that's not how Jeremiah ends, but rather God is unfailing in his love for them. And so he will not leave them in their sin. And here's the promise that he makes to them. There's coming a day, he says, we're going to take these sinful leaders away from you, and I'm going to give you good shepherds. A eh, good shepherd. One good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who will come. Amen. He says, I'm going to change you. No longer is anybody go go back looking for the Ark of the Covenant, which represented this old covenant. It represented a handshake agreement where they were going to do right, and He would be their God. But since they never did right and couldn't do right, God was going to establish a new covenant. In the new covenant, he was going to make them new. He was going to give them a new spirit. He was going to give them a new heart so that they could do good, so that they could be changed because they simply have no ability to do any better as you and I do not. But God says, I will not look on you with anger for I am unfailing in my love. I tell you, this God of ours is good. And always good. Yeah, amen. You know Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because there's a lot of sad things in here. Nobody listens to his message. Nobody is delivered. Nobody believes him. Israel goes off into slavery at the end of this letter. But God is not an angry, punishing God. God loves them dearly. Yeah, you know, there there have been plenty of early, There have been plenty of people throughout uh, the time of the church who have said, "Man." Old Testament God, He's kind of mean. I'm going to stick with New Testament God. It's an early heresy. It came up, uh, it came up within a hundred years after Christ ascended to heaven. This an early heresy where they look at Scripture and they go, somebody goes, uh, I think Old Testament God's mean. That's not the real God. New Testament God, I like that God. But you really have to miss a lot of this, whereas Old Testament God and New Testament God are the same God. Old Testament God is crying out over sin and serious about it. He doesn't want to punish them. But justice is good and justice is due because their sins are real. So it is the same God, this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins so that justice can be satisfied, but forgiveness can be had as well. You to understand God here as the father to a child. You ever had to punish a child when you didn't want to? Listen, I'm not looking to spank anybody today. Could we just be cool? And could you kids just calm down? Like good parents. This is important. You understand good parents. It's entirely possible that you didn't have good parents. I'm so sorry, but you surely know what a good parent looks like. Good parents are not out there to get their kids. A good parent doesn't wake up in the morning going, oh, my spanking hand's ready. Oh, my spanking hand's a little jittery. Somebody's about to get my spanking hand. Who's it going to be today? And A good parent doesn't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm ready to discipline somebody. I'm not going to be happy until I get to discipline somebody. This is who the Lord is, and so much more so. This is God saying, kids, I don't want to discipline anybody. The way you're acting is not acceptable. Come on, turn it around. Come on, you on your own accord, go up to your room for a little while and cool off so that you don't have to be punished. I'm looking to be a loving father. I'm not looking to be a judging father, but judgment comes because it's good and right and just. I, uh, I have a friend who was a law enforcement officer uh, for a while, and as he and I talked about his time in law enforcement, you know, I asked him, not necessarily an appropriate public question, but we were good friends, and we had been alone together and we were having a good conversation. I just asked him as a pastor, asks a friend, did you ever have to shoot anybody? He said, yeah, plenty of times. But there were plenty of other times when I didn't, and I never wanted to. He told a story about a time where, I, mean, I remember really clearly this one night, there's this one guy who's clearly on drugs, and he's fighting us and wrestling, and then he goes, picks up a piece of iron, some kind of weapon, you know, a bar or something like that, And my friend, the good police officer, has his hand on his gun as he should and says, please put it down. I will shoot you. And I don't want to shoot you. Put it down, down on the ground so I don't have to shoot you. Because he's a good police officer. He's not looking to do this. What he wants is just put it down so I don't have to do this. And this is why. This is why the Old Testament is shaped the way it is. Because God sends prophet, after prophet, after prophet. He is patient with Israel, king after king, generation after generation saying, just turn back. Just turn back from your wickedness. Turn back from the evil ways you are worshiping all these evil gods, and they're not even real gods. They're trees. It's a rock. What are you doing? And as I said already, the ways that you worship these false gods are detestable with all kinds of evil sacrifices. God says, turn back, turn back. What does God want for Israel? He wants their repentance. Let's finish in verse 19. I thought how I longed... This is God talking. I thought... How I long to make you my sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of all the nations. I thought you will call me my father and never turn away from me. However, as a woman may betray her lover, so you have betrayed me, house of Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. A sound is heard on the barren heights, the children of Israel weeping and begging for mercy. They have perverted their ways. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you faithless children. I will heal your unfaithfulness. Here we are, coming to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely falsehood comes from the hills, commotion from the mountains. But the salvation of Israel is only from the Lord our God. From the time of our youth, the shameful one has consumed what our fathers have worked for, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame. Let, us discover, or let, us, let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our fathers. From the time of our youth, even to this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. We talk about the anatomy of a good apology. That's what's going on in here. God is giving them the words to say. This is not what Israel is actually saying. This is God saying, do you want to know what words you need to use for repentance? So I say to you today, do you need the words of repentance today for sin in your life that you want to turn away from? Here are those words. I, uh, here we are. It starts down in verse 22. Here we are coming to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely, falsehood comes from the hills, commotion from the mountains. These are places that they would go for defense. These are places they would go for salvation and security, the mountains, the hills. But here they say, no, no, no. we're not going to go there looking for safety. We're not going to go there looking for security, because salvation of Israel is only in the Lord our God. From the time of our youth, the shameful one has consumed what our fathers had worked for, their flocks, their herds, their sons, their daughters— Let us lie down in our shame. Let our disgrace cover us, who we have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our fathers. From the time of our youth, even to this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. He gives them the words to say, to cry out to him. And then chapter 4, a promise. If you return, Israel, this is the Lord's declaration. You will return to Me if you remove the abhorrent idols from My presence and do not waver. Then you can swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. Then the nations will be blessed by Him and will pride themselves in Him. God is... God has asked Israel several questions today, so likewise, let me ask you a few questions today. God is serious about this relationship with you. God is serious about a relationship with you. Are you serious about a relationship with Him? God wants you to be forgiven, not judged. And He is patiently waiting on you. Do you believe this? Judgment comes for sin and sinners because our sins are not just a bad habit, our sins are not private, they never stay private. Our sins are not just a cute little hobby of ours on the side. They hurt other people, and they are worthy of judgment. Do you know this? And finally, perhaps the most important question, will you truly repent of your sins today? Will you truly turn to God? You know, it seems like sometimes for us, Say we turn to God in a a sort of a sideways manner, you know. Say you're supposed to, going this way in your sin, and you need to turn away from your sin and go follow after God. A lot of times for us, repentance is like this. Gosh, I need to turn away from my sin. (laughs) God, I've turned away from my sin. I will follow you now. Is it not? I mean, I... You know, it's a... I've, tur- I've repented of my sin and I've turned away from it somewhat. You know? For us, sin can be a... I, I'm, I've repented of my sin and I am now following after You, God. Is it not true of all of us? But no more. Let us individually follow after God. There was... Um, we are a Southern Baptist Church. That is to say, we are Telitha Baptist Church. We are a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a missionary organization. Uh, this church is actually older than the Southern Baptist Convention. This church got started well before that got started, which is interesting to me. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention is a missionary organization we put together. We partner with about 40,000 other Baptist churches. Uh, we send money together to send out missionaries, to start churches, uh, to fund the seminaries. We have five seminaries. Uh, And so between training pastors and missionaries and sending them off to start churches, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest missionary organization in the history of the world. It's incredible to get to be a part of. However, last year at the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting, where the messengers from all the different churches gathered up, the messengers said, all these churches, we keep hearing things about people trying to report abuse and it not going where, anywhere. And so we want an investigation. And so unanimously, the Southern Baptist Convention voted to have a third party come and investigate what was going on, specifically in the executive committee. This is a small board that works as an administrative body. They handle communications. They handle filtering the money around to the separate North American mission board, which plants churches in North America, the international mission board, the five seminaries. But the executive committee itself, there was a lot of cover-up. There were a lot of questions unanswered. They weren't even responding to their own trustees' questions. So he said, we said we want an outside accounting firm, not accounting, an outside law firm to do an investigation on what's been happening over the last 20 years, and we're going to require, since they're employees of the Southern Baptist Convention, and we are the Southern Baptist Convention, we said we're going to require them to waive any kind of legal privilege, any kind of attorney-client privilege. Everything has to be exposed here. That report came out last week, and a lot of things were exposed. It's a 200-page report. 300, I'm sorry. This one is a 300-page report. I read all of it. I couldn't go to sleep that night. It was a week ago. Um, after, after that, a 200-page report came out. Hold on. Let me give it to you chronologically what happened and what's going to happen next. Three things specifically was the executive committee indicted for. First of all, they ended the career of the highest-ranking and highest-paid woman in the Southern Baptist Convention, Jennifer Lyell. She was an executive at LifeWay. LifeWay is our publishing branch. Uh, LifeWay is awfully lucrative. They publish really big titles by lots of people, and so she was a uh, publishing executive for them and handled a lot of really big publishing contracts for them. Well, she had years before reported that she was abused Uh, by her missions professor while she was in seminary. About a decade before, she had reported this to that seminary, and that seminary had handled it rightly and fired the guy and said, we'll go with you to help you file a police report to make sure he's in jail for this because it's wrong. And she said, no, it's enough for me that he's out of ministry. I don't want to go through that. And you can understand a person who's a victim of abuse just not wanting to have to go through the amount of work and say it's enough that he's out of ministry and this won't happen again. Well, about 10 years later, she got word that he was serving as a missionary at some other non-Southern Baptist mission group. So she wanted her story to be published, and so she went to Baptist Press, our Southern Baptist Convention press site, which is run by the executive committee, and said, "Hey, here's the story I want to publish. I want this to go public. My name, his name. We're going to make it all public. Uh, the statute of limitations passed. There's no more legal standing for her any longer. But she wants to make it public, so that, that missionary organization and every other missionary, nobody's going to hire this guy again, so that he doesn't have opportunity to abuse anybody else. But when the executive committee published her story, they took out all references to abuse, and the story for the world, it looked like it was a consensual relationship." which means she was fired for committing adultery when really she was abused. You understand how terrible this is? And she, reporting to them over and over again with all kinds of corroboration, both from that seminary and a lot of other people, saying, you reported this wrong. I told you the words rightly, and you changed this. They did nothing and didn't edit or change the story for months and months and months. And then when they did do something, they just removed it, but they never issued a correction. This is a great evil against an abuse survivor. Number two, second thing that this report turned up, uh, because he was the Southern Baptist Convention president in 2008, 2009, and 2010, uh, it was revealed that popular pastor Johnny Hunt, you know Johnny Hunt? He wrote the Hoosier One curriculum that we used. Uh, Johnny Hunt had been in an inappropriate relationship with another pastor's wife about 2010, about that time that he had lured this pastor's wife into a beach condo alone and tried to be inappropriate, let's say. It was wrong. Number three things that this investigation pulled up and reported, that the executive committee had been systematically ignoring or stonewalling all kinds of people who reached out to them with abuse claims. You know, it's not a new problem, it's a long-time problem that if churches don't do due diligence when hiring on somebody or bringing somebody in and calling the church that they came from and checking out references and investigating things, that there exists in the world wolves, predators, who will jump from church to church, abuse somebody, and move on before they ever get caught. And moms kept reporting this to the executive committee saying, do something. Can there be a registry? Because plenty of these people, so few of these cases of abuse ever actually get prosecuted. So you can end up on a sex offender registry if you ever get prosecuted, but so few of them end up happening. Could you keep some kind of record of credible could you let other churches know that some other church said, even though this guy didn't get prosecuted because the, the family didn't want to, the, the person who was a victim didn't want to bring up legal action? That totally happened. That guy did it. You don't need to hire him. He should not be in ministry. And the executive committee kept saying again and again, I'm sorry, we can't do that. All of our churches are independent churches. We can't keep some kind of record like that. We could be sued for libel by these guys because we put them on our list. The difficulty is, none of that's actually true. A nonprofit can't be sued like that for liable, and we can do what we want to as a nonprofit organization. They were both lying about it, but here's the worst part: All these years, the executive committee had been keeping a registry of every accusation they heard about or saw in the news anywhere, and they just didn't tell anybody about it. They kept it so they wouldn't accidentally hire on one of these people. When it was released, it's a 200-page document late in the week, about 700 names. Not all of them SBC, not all of the Southern Baptists, most of them not in ministry any longer, one of them from Aiken County. Uh, I I didn't read all of that. I couldn't—I didn't have the heart to go through all 700 names, but um, I did look for South Carolina, and I did look for Aiken um, through it. So this is awfully grievous. One of the people who helped bringing this to light, just to bring everything around for you, is our friend Rachel Dinhollander, Southern Baptist. Uh, who's helping the executive, or not the executive, who's helping the investigation committee to do this investigation, should see herself as now an attorney that works with victims. So what are we going to do? Some of our members, as I talked about this on Wednesday night, and some of our members just, it's in the news, you've seen this out there. What should we do? Several people have recommended to us that we should stop being Southern Baptist. We could do that. I mean, we're, we are our own church. We could just take a vote together and say, we're out. We're going to just fund minister, uh, missionaries directly. We know some out there. We'll start funding them ourselves and go our own way. We could, but I don't think that we should just yet. I see the Southern Baptist Convention as mine, not as theirs. And I think we have a responsibility to make right all of these wrongs. And while there's an opportunity, and while anybody else, any other churches out there exist that want to make this right, then we need to stay and work with them. While there were a group of evil guys, you know, this passage today, Jeremiah talks about these wicked shepherds who get in place over the people and need to be removed, and so God's going to give them some good shepherds. Some evil men got into the institution and hurt a lot of people, and we need to make it right. I'm very optimistic about our churches. When we gather up at the annual meeting, which is in two weeks, and I'll be there, it's out in California, uh, and I will give you a report back on how we go, I fully expect that the, we are going to vote together, uh, all of us, however many churches arrive there, to do some more investigations of other entities to make sure if there's anything that needs to come out, it must come out. And then we will do what is needed to take care of and protect those who have been abused. What does the SBC need to do? It's exactly what's written here in Jeremiah chapter 2 and chapter 3. Repent. But plenty of institutions out there in the world have had a a, a politician's apology and repentance. Oh, we're sorry that happened. We're not going to change anything, but we're sorry that happened, but not us. We institutionally, as the SBC, need to make structural changes for transparency's sake to take care uh, of victims. And yeah, that registry is going to happen where that list will be compiled that we can reach out to not just people who are on a sex offender registry, but even people who have been credibly accused so that we don't bring them back into our churches accidentally. We will ask, just like Rachel Denhollander, what's a kid worth? What's a girl worth? What extent are we willing to go to to protect them? We'll do what it takes, no matter what. So how about as a church, Talatha, what do we need to do to protect ourselves and to protect our children, to protect the people in the churches? Well, we do background checks. We have a pretty good system for background checking people, for making sure adults aren't alone with children, definitely not men alone with children. That's just the way it is. There's some more training we could perhaps do this summer and we'll look into that and some surveillance things that we can do also to make sure our children are well taken care of because we'll do what it takes to make sure everything is okay and to be transparent overall. And how about you for yourself? What are you willing to do knowing that you, as a, your own little microcosm of an institution yourself, have also have members in the body who are sinners and you've sinned Are you willing to repent today and turn away from your sin? I tell you that the one true God who's not a rock and not a tree, the one real God, He is unfailing in His love for you. And He wants you. And He has been patient for you. Not forever, but today's your chance to say, I'm not living right, but I'm going to turn from it. Truly and honestly and give my life to Christ. God is serious about a relationship with you. Are you serious about a relationship with him? God wants to forgive you not bring judgment to you and he is patiently waiting. Do you believe this? So will you truly repent today Turning away from your sin and turning fully towards God. This is what it means to be a Christian father God I thank you that you're so gracious and patient with us. I pray for our SBC annual meeting here in two weeks that you would give us the strength to do what is right, real repentance and real making right what's wrong. I pray as a church that we would preemptively prepare ourselves and train ourselves and be vigilant to provide and to protect our congregation members and our children. And I pray for ourselves today, Lord, that as you point out to us the sins that are in our life today, I pray that we would receive this from you as a gift, an opportunity to repent, and that we would turn to you, our God of unfailing love. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need to come forward today, you can.